Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Yes, Father God, we just come before you, Lord, as your, your people, Lord God, in Jesus' name. And we, we just pray, Lord, for the church in South Africa, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, for, for how you've blessed us, Lord. Um, and Lord, we, but we also just come and we pray, Lord, that you'll awaken us again, Lord God, just uh, to an urgency, Lord, um, to see your kingdom come, to see your will be done, to see your name glorified in this country, Lord God. Father, we, we, we just acknowledge, Lord God, that, um, Lord, it's, it's so easy for us to, to get drawn into the comfort, Lord, and the, the seeking of comfort and pleasure, Lord, that so characterizes this world, Lord. But we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be different, Lord. We pray that you'll help us to, to be salt and light, Lord. Salt and light in the society, Lord, and to make a positive difference, Lord. Not only to, to be there, Lord, not only to be present, but to, to make a difference, Lord, as we are mixed into society, Lord, as your people, Lord. Where, Lord, where our country's suffering so much, Lord, under corruption, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that we as the salt um, that, that you have placed in this world, Lord, that we will not lose our saltiness, Lord, but that as we get mixed in, Lord God, we will, we will preserve. Lord, and we also pray, Lord God, that, that your church will really be a house of prayer, Lord, that, that um, Lord, all the different congregations, Lord, that call upon your name across South Africa, Lord God, <clears throat> will really have a culture of prayer, a culture of calling out to you, Lord, both individually and corporately in Jesus' name. Lord, we just consecrate ourselves to you, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll help us to be the church that Christ died to purchase. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. For those who don't know me, my name is Ennis Swart. Um, I'm one of the pastors here in uh, Shofar Joburg. And um, this morning I want to share with you on a, on a very well-known portion of Scripture. I think it's so well-known that, um, you know, at least part of it, uh, that many people who haven't read, even if they haven't read the, their Bible in many years, will probably be able to recite it. <laughs> That's how famous it is. And it's, um, it's the portion in, in, John, oh, in Matthew chapter 6, which contains the so-called Our Father. Now, many of us have, have prayed the Our Father as part of our, um, you know, at school maybe, as part of our assemblies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, was part of church services. So, so many, many of us um, know the prayer off by heart. Um, that, that was probably the first prayer that we, we taught our um, son, Justin. He's, um, he's six years old now, but since he was probably about three years old and couldn't even pronounce the words properly, he was praying the Our Father. You know, as, as soon as he could talk, he started talking a bit late. He was uh, over three years old. And um, <clears throat> I'm just going to read this portion of scripture to us uh, and, and, and say a few things about it. But one thing that the Lord has laid on my heart and that I want to highlight to you before I even read it is there are three ways to pray based on three approaches to God or three kinds of relationship with God. Um, and those three relationships with God are um, the relationship of the irreligious, the relationship of the religious, and the relationship of the Christian. Um, to the irreligious, God is useless, and therefore prayer is useless. To the religious, God is useful, and therefore prayer is useful. But to the Christian, God is wonderful, and therefore prayer is wonderful. And um, we're just going to look at that um, a little this morning. So <clears throat> I'm going to read from, I'm going to read the old section from. Um, Matthew 6, verse 5 to 15, but I'm going to just be focusing on verse 5 to 9 this morning. Um, and it says, And when you pray, 
Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our, our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And Lord Jesus, we just thank you, Lord, that you taught your disciples to pray and that you teach us to pray. Lord, and, and we just confess that we so easily fall into, Lord, the traps of both irreligion or religion, Lord. But thank you that you come and show us a different way. And we pray, Lord, that we'll really see that, that we'll really see your heart. And that we'll be able to really know our Father in Jesus' name. <clears throat> so, from this, this passage teaches us, I just want to highlight three things that the passage teaches us. Firstly, uh, in this passage, uh, this passage teaches us that Jesus wants us to pray, that he wants us to pray, how he wants us to pray, and on what basis we can pray in that way. Okay? So the passage teaches us that Jesus wants us to pray, how he wants us to pray, and on which basis we can pray in that way. So this ver these verses are part of a bigger section from um, Matthew 6, verse 1, to about verse 18, I think, 18, nine, 18 years. And um, it starts off by saying, be, be, be careful, Jesus says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness uh, before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Um, and then he starts speaking about three very common forms of Jew practice, Jewish practices of righteousness. Uh, they are giving, prayer, and fasting. Giving, prayer, and fasting. And, and he says a few things uh, about each of them. <clears throat> so he gives those examples, but, but he specifically starts each of them by saying, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And um, notice that he doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. In other words, Jesus expects his followers to, to pray. Jesus wants his followers to pray. Um, and, and it's so different from so, so many, you know, irreligious people. Um, and, and that's probably the category in the world that's growing um, the fastest. You know, people who are irreligious, people who are either atheistic, ag agnostic, or the so-called nuns, you know, <laughs> N-O-N-E-S, nuns. Those who, in a survey on religion, would tick the box, none. <laughs> what is your religion? None. <laughs> so not nuns in the Roman Catholic sense, you know. But <laughs> um, it's a, and, and, and those are, are people who, who find no use for formal religion, you know, don't identify themselves with any kind of religion, and, and would claim that they don't really pray. But the strange thing is when, you actually do, when they actually do surveys, uh, they find that almost everyone prays, has prayed, or does pray. Even, even people who claim to be irreligious. Um, so in, in a sense, in their hearts, in, in, sort of in the front of their minds, when, when they think about religion they, and, and God, they think, okay, irreligious people think, no, it's useless. God is useless, therefore prayer is useless, so I don't pray. But, but when push comes to shove, they often do pray. Uh, and it shows you that there's a bit of a disconnect there um, that, that shouldn't be there. And it's interesting when Jesus talks about when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Of those three, he spends by far the most time talking about prayer. 
And arguably, prayer is the most important practice of righteousness, spiritual discipline that there is. And that's why Jesus spends so much time on it. Because it's, it's, it's at the very heart of our relationship with God. Uh, and and it's, it's very much a reflection of our relationship with God. So, about four times, actually, in this passage, uh, Jesus says, when you pray, he starts off and he says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And then in the next verse, verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 6, he says, but when you pray, go into your inner room. And then in verse 7, he says, and when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans. And then in verse 9, he says, then uh, this then is how you should pray. And you see, over and over and over again, he says, when you pray, when you pray, pray like this. Don't pray like that, pray like this. Uh, Jesus expects us to pray. In fact, I want to go so far as to say that the Christian life is impossible without prayer. The Christian life is impossible without prayer. Just like human relationship is impossible without communication, so relationship between the human and the divine is impossible without communication. And, and that's, that's common sense to us. And, and in other words, what Jesus is, is saying to us... Um, is that he expects us to pray. We should not be like the irreligious if we want to have a relationship with him. We must pray. And he modeled that life of prayer to us. If you go and read the Gospels, even just a cursory reading of the Gospels, show that Jesus didn't only teach on prayer, he lived a life of prayer. He often withdrew and prayed to the Father. And, and here's the thing. Think about this. Think about this. Jesus who probably, more than any of us, could afford not to pray, prayed more than all of us. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Jesus had no sin to repent of. He had no weaknesses to pray about. He had, he had, you know, so much of the things that take up our prayer lives, <laughs> he, he didn't have that. So, so you know, if there's, if there, you know, just thinking about it, if there, were, if there were, were one person who could afford not to pray or not to pray so much, one would have thought it would be Jesus. And yet Jesus prayed a lot. Why did Jesus pray a lot? Because of the relationship he had with the Father. Because of the intimacy that's there. And it, in other words, it shows us that our prayer life is not just about getting our needs met. It's about a lot more than that. It's about intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. <clears throat> I know of, you know, not, uh, not, uh, I, I know of no person in church history that has had a massive impact on, on the history of the world who has not had a, a, a massive prayer life, a, a very strong, robust prayer life. All the people who had, who had a big influence on history were people who prayed. And then God worked through them. So, the first thing that, that we must see is um, the fact that Jesus wants us to pray. But then, then we also see how Jesus wants us to pray. How He wants us not to pray and how He wants us to pray. And, and yet, um, in verse um, 5 to to verse 8, Jesus mentions two groups, two groups of people um, that he doesn't want us to pray like. Okay? So he first mentions the hypocrites, and then he mentions the pagans. And for both of them, he says, don't be like them. Don't pray like them. Now, the interesting thing is, um, these two groups are both religious groups who pray a lot. It's not like he's, he's saying... They're not praying. They are praying. What, what Jesus has a problem with is how they pray and on the basis of what they pray. And um, so Jesus mentions these two religious groups who pray regularly but for the wrong reasons. And he wants us to not be like them. So the first group is the hypocrites. And, and Jesus says of them, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners you know, in formal places of worship and, you know, just on the street corners in informal places of worship. They love to stand praying. And, and you know, that's in a sense ironic and, ironic and a bit disturbing because Jesus says they love to pray. Which is a good thing. 
We should also love to pray. But they only love to pray under certain circumstances and for specific reasons. They love to pray in order to be seen by others. And that is why they're called hypocrites by Jesus. Because they are doing a God-pleasing action with a man-pleasing motive. They're doing a God-pleasing action, but out of a man-pleasing motive. They're doing something that pretends to be focused on God, but actually it's focused on people. They're doing something that pretends to try and please God, but actually they're trying to please people. And, and, and here's the thing that's a bit scary. Anything that we do in the Christian life that is good and right, we can do in that way. We can worship in that way. And like um, Portia was sharing, we should be bold and, and free in our worship and we should, you know, have the freedom to lift our hands and lift our voices and even dance if we want to and if, if, if we feel the Spirit leading that way. But we can do all of those things, which are good things and right things and biblical things, in order to impress people rather than to please God. That's a big danger. And, and, and that's the difference, one of the differences between religion and Christianity. And, and, and think about it in this way. Um, for instance, I mean, you often hear examples of this, of a guy who's, say, very successful, you know, making a lot of money or he's very successful in sport, he's very famous or whatever, and, and he wants to get himself a beautiful wife. But sometimes, not because he loves her, but because she makes him look good. And this beautiful wife becomes an accessory that he can sort of have on his arm because he's now successful in business, he's successful in sport, he's famous, and he has a beautiful wife. Now, ladies, how would that make you feel <laughs> if a man treated you that way? Treated you as some kind of accessory that makes him look good? I don't think you'll be too happy about it, right? <laughs> and rightly so. You shouldn't be very happy about that because it's hypocritical. It would be exactly what Jesus says these hypocrites are doing to God. I'm praying to God because it makes me look good. <laughs> Because other people respect me. Think you know, how spiritual I am. If I do that, if I pretend to focus on God in order to get the focus of man, I'm being a hypocrite. I'm being insincere. I'm not being authentic. And Jesus says, don't pray like that. It doesn't help you pray like that. So we must also love praying like the hypocrites but we must love praying for different reasons and we mustn't only love praying in public now some people say oh jesus has a problem with public prayer no he doesn't jesus himself prayed in public go and read a few chapters later in matthew 14 verse 19 when jesus is uh doing the miracle of, of multiplying the bread he breaks the bread and then it says he prays and he blesses it so he didn't and i mean there were hundreds thousands of people present there jesus had no problem with public prayer per se but Jesus had a big problem with public prayer that had its main goal as impressing people rather than pleasing God. So Jesus says, you know, we, we mustn't be like that. We mustn't um, be like the hypocrites. And, and he says specifically that if the reward, because he says, I tell you the truth, they have the reward in full. In other words, there's no more reward left for them. So in other words, when you pray... The focus of your prayer determines who you focus on determines who you expect a reward from. If you focus on people, pray focusing on people, then you expect a reward from people and Jesus says, you'll get it. You'll get people's attention. You might even get people's respect or their acclaim. But that's all you'll get. You'll get no reward from God. That is your full reward. People will ooh and ah over you but God will not. God will not. Um, and then he, he says in, in verse um, 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
So he says, but, in other words, in contrast, when you pray, go into your inner room. In, in fact, in the NIV, it doesn't say inner room, but the word there, in the old King James used to translate it closet. You remember? Some of you don't know what the King James Version is. Okay, it's the old translation of the Bible, you know, where, where you had these and hours and all kinds of um, old English language. And um, it used to say, when you, when you pray, go, but you, when you pray, go into your closet and close the door. And um, we had a friend when I was in Stellenbosch um, at Vasti. I was in Ice Marie, one of the smallest hostel in, um, in Stellenbosch University. And we had a friend, uh, and we, someone I can't remember who once caught him in his cupboard. <laughs> and he literally opened his cupboard, and, and you know, there we, 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 we hang the clothes at the bottom. He sat down there, closed the door of the cupboard, and he sat there praying. So he, he took that command in the, in the King James Version, you know, go into your closet and close your door. He took it very literally, and he sat there in his, in his cupboard praying. <laughs> but um, the word used in the Greek. Um, doesn't mean cupboard, and it doesn't just mean room. Um, in, in, the, in, the, in the time of Jesus, in the first century in, in Palestine, I mean, they didn't have a glass yet, or, or at least, you know, it wasn't affordable. Um, so, so houses didn't have glass windows. They just had open windows. A window was just a hole. So what they would do, if, if, you, wanted to, if you wanted to put something in a storehouse where people couldn't just climb in through the window and steal it, um, every house would be sort of built, <coughs> sorry, you know, if, if, uh, in in such a way that you had outside rooms which had windows on the outside that faced the outside, and then on the inside you'd have a sort of a, a inner room or a pantry. You can call it sort of a pantry uh, that was used as a storeroom or inner room, and it was had sort of a double purpose. On the one hand, you you could store things in there because it had no windows and was usually cooler. It was quite safe to store things in there, but also if you wanted privacy. You'd sort of go in there, in the, in the inner room. And, and that's the word that is used here. He says, go into your inner room, the room that has no windows through which people can see you, and pray there. Because the thing is, and he says that in so many words, pray to your father, and literally it says, who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Pray to your father um, who is in secret, and, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the idea is to go into your inner room and to close the door. And, and uh, you know, I think it's quite significant that it says close the door um, because it's a symbolic action. You closing the door tells the world and tells yourself that I'm serious about this. I'm serious about keeping the world out, and I'm serious about keeping myself in. I'm committing to pray to the Lord and to spend time with the Lord. And one of the things that really gets me about this is, is, is when it says, and your father who is, is in secret, um, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And that really gets me. Because when Jesus says, your father who sees in secret, he's not only talking about your father who sees into the secret place of your inner room, but your Father who sees into the secret place of your heart, of your inner life. And the amazing thing about that to me is that my Father sees into my heart, sees everything that's wrong there and still allows me to call Him Father. A God who knows everything about me and still loves me. Really? Wow! That's amazing. Who would not want to spend time with such a Father? Who would not want to pour out their heart with such a father? You know, so often we are so hesitant, we are so careful in terms of how we pray because we're so used to with one another putting our best foot forward, right? It's true. It's true. But we forget that God already knows everything about us. He knows us warts and all. He knows, I mean, all the bad things, you know, that, that we're trying to hide, He already knows about them. We might as well take the liberty and just be ourselves around him. Because it's safe to. Because he, he knows everything bad about us. And he still loves us. He still loves us. We can really be ourselves around him. He's our father. And, and, and those of you who are fathers will understand that. Or mothers. You'll understand that. You know your kids. Warts and all. 
And you still love them. You don't love them because they're perfect. You love them in spite of the fact that they're not perfect. They're your children. They're precious to you. And if that is true for earthly parents, how much more is that true for our Heavenly Father, who is absolutely perfect? So let us, not, let us be like those children. Let us be like little children and, and with that boldness that only little children can have who know that they are loved by their parents. Let us so approach God. You know, our daughter Kirsten uh, um, is, I mean, she's such a, a beautiful little girl. She's nine years old now, but she's very shy. Um, but I have to qualify that. She's very shy around strangers. <laughs> she's very shy around people she doesn't know. And she's very shy around people she doesn't yet trust. But she's not so shy around us. <laughs> When she's at home, she, she, she can often turn into a little clown and be very sort of uh, <laughs> really funny and jokey. And, you know, when, she, when she's around us, because she knows we really love her, she, she knows she can really be herself. And she can be very loud and, and so on. And if you compare the little quiet mouse sitting in the corner, you know, among strange people that she doesn't know so well, with the loud clown you know, laughing and joking and, and being all silly, you know, around us, you think it's two different people. But she knows that we love her. She knows she can trust us. She knows that there's nothing that she can do that will make us not love her. But do we know that about our Father when we pray to Him? Do we know that about Him? Um... So, the first group, like I said, is uh, the hypocrites. And God says, don't, don't be like them. Don't, don't pray to, to, Jesus says, don't pray to, to God, but actually you're trying to impress people. Don't pray to God, and, but actually you're trying to impress people. Um, but then he says the second group, the pagans. Uh, who constantly babble. And here he's talking about mantras, you know, these repetitive prayers. And, and the, the, the irony is, um, pagans can't pray like Christians, but Christians can't pray like pagans. There are a lot of people who pray this very prayer that Jesus says, the Our Father, but they don't pray it, they recite it. They basically just recite it as a mantra, as a, as a little rhyme. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying we should not pray like. Pray to our Father. Um, so what they do is where, where, where the hypocrites, their focus is on other people. The focus of pagans is on themselves. And it says they pray, you know, they, have this, this, they keep on babbling. They use all kinds of empty vain repetitions, empty words, because they think they'll be heard because of their many words. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. And and that's the crux. That's the crux. Number one, their prayer is mainly about themselves. The, their main concern is that their prayer gets heard. And they see prayer as a way to manipulate, and this was very common in the pagan world, but to manipulate their gods, their different gods, because you had all kinds of different gods. You had a, a god for seafaring, and when you went on a boat trip, you would pray to this god. And you had a god of for harvest, like Baal in the Old Testament, was the god of um, of um, fertility. Yes, there we go, and fruitfulness. And and if you wanted a good harvest, you'd pray to Baal. And then you had all kinds of other gods. And and then when they did go on the sea journey, they'd pray to, let's say, Neptune. You know, and then they'll like use these vain repetitions and. Spiritual nagging, you know, re, you know, over and over and over, pray the same thing. And, and they'll sort of use it as a kind of spiritual arm twisting. Or when they, you know, they planted and they wanted a harvest, they'll pray to, to Baal or whatever other god there was. Um, <clears throat> and the focus was, number one, on them and what they wanted. Where the hypocrites focused on other people, the pagans' focus was on themselves. And they thought prayer was a means to manipulate their gods to get what they wanted. And, and, and here's the crux of it. They thought that the answer to their prayer would come based on something that they did. Something that they did. And that's the problem. The answer to our prayers, if, if, 
If we are Christians, the answer to our prayers never come because of something that we do. Never become, comes because of our many words or our many good deeds or our righteousness even. It doesn't come because of something that we do. So there are two ways of approaching God, two basic kinds of relationship. Now, obviously, there's a spectrum in between. But these two basic kinds of ways of approaching God um, find outflow in our prayer lives. And the one is covenant relationship, family ties. And the other one is commercial relationship. Now, let's just use, because... Um, you know, this, this will sort of help you see the connections. Let's just use the example of staying in a house. You can stay in, the, in, a, in someone else's house in two ways. One, you can stay in their house as their child. And you don't pay any rent, I think. <laughs> in fact, often you get paid, you know, pocket money or something. <laughs> but you, you can live in someone else's house as a child, and there's no sort of commercial transaction that happened. And the basis of family life is covenant. Because covenant is extending family relationships to people. So you can live in someone else's house as their family, as their child, and then you don't pay rent. Or you can live as a boarder, a tenant, someone who pays rent. And those are the two kinds of relationship that you get. And so many people relate to God as rent payers as borders instead of children. And that's what these pagans are doing. They relate to God as rent payers. And, and you know, um, you know I've, I've heard some people say before that, you know, when you, um, you know, if you're, a, say, a landlord, you know, you must be very careful, you know, if you're living on the same property as, as your tenants because um, there's the danger that you might become friends and they'll start talking to you about, you know, all the issues and their problems and their difficulties and you start to care about them and then what happens when they don't pay the rent anymore, you know, what are you going to do then? You know, how are you going to be sort of tough and, you know, uh, I've heard people say that. And those kinds of relationships... There's always a transaction that happens, a commercial transaction. There's a give and receive. There's I give you this, therefore you give me that. I give you money, therefore you give me you know, a room to stay in. And what Jesus is saying, so many people approach God in that way. They approach God as rent payers. Father, I, God, I pay the rent, and therefore you must provide. And prayer happens for those people on the basis of the rent that they've paid. In other words, people will say, and often this is not conscious. Often this is not even, you know, people don't even consciously know about this. But often, you know, uh, we'd want to approach God and say, um, God, you know, I've done X, Y, and Z. You know, I've prayed every day. I've, uh, I've gone to church. I give to the poor, um, you know, whatever, you know, we think we, the rent is that is required of us. And therefore, God, you must do X, Y, and Z for me. And, th and that's sort of the, the approach to prayer. And, and, and you know this is because how you respond when your prayers do not get answered in the way you want them to tells you whether, whether you've into fallen into this trap. If your prayers do not get answered the way you want to, do you, number one, fall into guilt and anxiety? Ooh, you know, I haven't been good enough. I must try harder. I haven't been paying the rent, in other words. <laughs> I, I've been skimping on the rent, and that's why my prayers are not being answered. Or anger. Why isn't God answering my prayer? I have been paying the rent, haven't I? Anger and frustration. And what Jesus is saying is, when we pray, we should not be like that. And, and the other thing is, when God does answer our prayers, you know, if we pray like that, um, the pagan, pagan prayers, if, if God does answer our prayers, we're not thankful. Because I've been paying the rent. You know, I, 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 I deserve this. <laughs> right? I mean, when, when, when your salary comes in at the end of the month, you don't say, oh, thank Thank you, KPMG, or thank you, you know, ESCOM. You know, I'm so grateful for my salary. You say, no, you know, of course they're going to pay my salary. I've been working hard. <laughs> you know, I deserve this. Right? But so often we have that same approach to God. 
And like I said, pagans cannot pray like Christians, but Christians can fall into the trap of praying, praying like pagans and approaching God as rent payers, as boarders, and not as, not as children. And, and Jesus says we must be very aware uh, of that, must be aware of that, that trap. Um, now, when, what's the difference? And he says that in the next verse. You know, he says, but when you pray, pray to your Father. You, 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 know, you should not be like them because your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. Your Father knows what you need. Now, the so-called pagans, as Jesus calls them there, they approach God with the assumption, the implicit assumption that I know what I need. I know what's best for me. And I'm going to ask for it, and I'm going to ask for it until I get it. Because I know what's best for me. Children, as opposed to rent payers or pagans, approach God trusting God and saying, God, you know what's best for me. I cannot tell you what a massive difference it's made in my prayer life when I started not only trusting God to answer my prayers, but also trusting God not to answer certain prayers. That that sounds wrong to some of you. It's like, why would you pray if you didn't want God to answer? No, no, no. When I started trusting God more than I trust myself. When I started making peace with the fact that I, as a child, I don't always know what I need. And what I'm asking for is not always the right thing. And when I started trusting God so much that I even became thankful for the prayers God didn't answer. Think about it this way. I mean, there might be some teenagers here, but uh, many of you, you know, uh, are sort of beyond that. Think back to when you were a teenager. How much of what you wanted then was actually good for you? What, now put a percentage. Try and put a percentage to it. What percentage of what you wanted when you were a teenager, when you were 14, 13, 14 years old, was actually good for you? <laughs> I, I think if you put that percentage above 50%, you're being very optimistic. <laughs> right? Uh, so much of what we wanted, genuinely, desperately wanted in those days, I mean, it would have been disastrous if we'd gotten it. How much of what you prayed for then, if you got all, say God gave you all of what you prayed for then, what would your life have looked like? I mean, you would have gotten all the wrong boyfriends or girlfriends. For all the wrong reasons, you would, uh, I mean, you'd, you'd, have, you'd have just indulged. I mean, if, if God had just indulged you, you, you'd, you, it would have messed up your life. It would have messed up your life. Now, take that a step further. Fine. You're not, 24, you're not 14 anymore. You're 24 now. So hopefully the percentage is better. But it's still not 100%. Right? In fact, it'll never be 100% as long as we live. Because we as human beings are fallen human beings. We, we, we're foolish. We have some foolishness in our hearts and we don't always know what's best for us. And so, the difference between children and pagans is that people who approach God as children approach God saying, God, you know what's best for me. And I, I want to trust you that you will answer the prayers which I pray that are in line with your will and that you will not answer the prayer. That you'll actually protect me for myself. Um, Tim Keller says it beautifully. He says, um, God will always either give you what you ask for in prayer or what you would have asked for if you knew what he knew. So, children approach God as Father knowing that he knows what's best for us and that if we ask what's best for us, he'll give it. And in his love and in his grace, if we ask what's not best for us, he won't give it. And we thank him for that. We are grateful for that. Uh, in fact, C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. Um, where is, uh, he says, um, We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence will give us whatever we want, whenever we want it. <laughs> huh? That's well said, eh? <laughs> we, 
We want, in fact, not, a, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who will give us whatever we want, whenever we want it. And, 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 and what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 you don't have a grandfather in heaven who just dishes out the sweets whenever you ask for them. You have a father in heaven. Because, because the grandfather, in, you know, the grandfather, I mean, we all know this, you know. When you're a grandfather, this is your privilege, you know. You, you can dish out the sweets and you can put those, 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 those kids on a sugar rush and then mom and dad have to take them home and deal with them. Right? And uh, the kids love you for that and that's exactly what you want. But it's not, especially long term, it's not what's best for the kids. Right? It's not what's best for the kids. And, and, and so we need to get to know God as our father. The fa- and, and fathers are co- usually concerned, more concerned with the long-term benefits of the children. In other words, when we pray to our father, God's going to give us what we really need that will help us to not be like the hypocrites or the pagans, but to become like him, to become like him. And because God is a living God... He can answer our prayers. And because He's a loving God, He will answer our prayers. But not all of them. If God answers all our prayers, He's not a loving God. The fact that God doesn't answer all our prayers proves that He's a loving God. That He really has our best interest at heart. So how much of what you, um, you prayed for is, is good for you? That is how much you can trust yourself. How much of what God wants you is good for you is good for you. That is how much you can trust God. Trust Him. Let's trust Him as children because that's the relationship out of which um, true prayer flows. And then the third thing is, on what basis can we um, pray in this way, approach God in this way? Whereas the hypocrites are focused on pleasing other people, pagans are focused on pleasing themselves, Christians are focused on pleasing God. Another way to say that is, Um, where irreligious people find God useless and religious people find God useful, Christians find God beautiful and wonderful. Um, And that's why we pray. When Jesus teaches us to pray, He says, Our Father in heaven, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing that you start doing when you pray as a child and you pray to God as our Father is you pray with wonder and worship because of who He is. In fact, um, when you look at that phrase, and I I think that's actually the key phrase of the old prayer, Our Father in Heaven. It it says a a few things to us. Number one, the part in Heaven speaks about the greatness of God. God is above us. He is above us in wisdom in knowing what's good for us and what we need. He's above us in holiness, in terms of um, just being perfect. And He's above us in power, in terms of what He can provide. He's way above us. So, so the in heaven part speaks about the greatness of God, but the Our Father part speaks about the goodness of God. Even though He's so far above us in wisdom, holiness, and power, He's willing to be Our Father. He's willing to love us, even though he sees in secret, into the very secret place of our hearts, and knows everything about us. He's still willing to love us and call us his children and allow us to call him Father. That is how much he loves us. The goodness of God. The in heaven speaks about the greatness of God, and our Father speaks about the goodness of God. Now, if you only believe in the goodness of God, but not in the greatness of God, you'll believe in a God who wants to answer your prayers but can't. But if you only believe in the greatness of God and not the goodness of God, you'll believe in a God who can answer your prayers but doesn't want to. You see, when you pray, you've got to pray, Our Father in heaven. You've got to pray to a God who is so much greater than you, but is so good that He still loves you. You've got to pray like that. You've got to have a revelation of both the goodness and the greatness of God if you want to pray in that way. Now, here's the thing. Um, The key to me is in the little word, our. It's, isn't it interesting that Jesus says, when you pray, don't be you know, like the hypocrites and shadow, you know, who pray out loud in public places only, but go into your inner room, lock the door. And, 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 and in this place, in your inner room, where you're alone, you don't pray, my Father, but you pray, our Father. 
Isn't that interesting? It's a private prayer which you pray from a corporate perspective. Our Father, forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because number one, you prayed as part of a community. In other words, all our prayer is supposed to be intercession. All that I pray for myself, I'm supposed to be praying for us. Isn't that amazing? That you can, at the very same time, while you're praying for your needs and for the issues that are on your heart, pray for the same issues for the whole world's Christians. And so often when we pray, my God or my Father only, and not our God or our Father, we miss that opportunity and we pray only for ourselves and not for the rest of Christianity. That's the one point. Um, now many, many people, even many commentators say, no, um, we call this the Lord's Prayer, but, but it's actually a most misnomer because Jesus clearly could not have prayed this prayer because it says, forgive us our sins and lead us not into temptation. So, so they'll say, no, but Jesus couldn't have prayed that prayer because Jesus had no sin to be forgiven. But when they say that, they miss the point completely, I think. I think they missed the point completely. Yes, Jesus had no sins of his own to repent of. But this, even Jesus, when, when he teaches us to pray, doesn't teach, he, he, uh, when Jesus prayed, clearly taught us to pray the way he prayed. He didn't pray only my Father. He prayed our Father. So when Jesus prays this prayer, he would be praying it on behalf of us all. What's Jesus doing right now up in heaven? Interceding for us. And the whole point of this is that even though Jesus doesn't have any sins to repent of, he is identifying with us and praying this prayer on behalf of us. In fact, in fact, here's the point. The only way you, we can call God our Father is if the hour includes Jesus. Because he's first and foremost Jesus' Father that Jesus shares with us through adoption. And that's the amazing thing about what Jesus did. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, a couple of chapters later, in Matthew 26, verse 39, he says, My Father, if it's at all possible, let this bitter cup pass me by. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He says, My Father, and he refers to God, he addresses God as my Father. But then he says, this, this bitter cup, this cup of judgment, which they are supposed to drink. Lord, it's a terrible cup. I don't want to drink it, yet not my will, but your will be done. I'm willing to drink it on their behalf. The cup of judgment that they deserve, I'm willing to drink it. I'm willing to have it poured out on me. So that it doesn't have to be poured out on them. And then when it actually happens, when that bitter cup, when he actually has to drink it, he hangs on the cross and what does he say? doesn't say my father he says my god my god why have you forsaken me and that's one of the few possibly the only place in the gospels where jesus does not address god as father but as god and jesus hung on the cross and addressed the father as only my god my god so that we can address him as our father Can you see that? Can you see what Jesus did for us on the cross? Can you see how Jesus made it possible for God to be our Father? So that we don't have to come like hypocrites who do a useless kind of praying that is the only purpose of it is to impress other people, or like pagans who, who do spiritual arm twisting and manipulation to try and you know get God to do what you know, spiritual nagging to get God to do what we want. But so that we can come as children and call God our Father. Where prayer is its own greatest reward. Where we don't primarily pray to get stuff from God, but where we pray to be with God. You know, my children, you know, often, you know, with work I have to go away or things keep me busy. And then, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll be up early in the morning and the kids won't see me. And, and, you know, by the time I get back, they're already in bed and sleeping. And, and if... Uh, you know, a day or two have gone by where, where the kids haven't seen me. When they do see me, they run and they grab my legs and they cling to me. 
Because if you're a child, you want to be with your father. And that same desire, if we are children of God, will be in us. And the way to give expression to it is in prayer. Now, how do you know you know God as Father? Because it's a... I'm going to ask um, <coughs> Daniel to just quickly play a video clip. Because knowing God as Father is, is something that God himself has to do in our hearts. And it's a revelation that we need to get. How do you know you've gotten that revelation? I just want to, uh, Daniel, to quickly play that uh, a short video clip. It's just a minute or so long about a, a baby sitting in a, I think he's sitting in a feeding chair and, and the mother is singing to him, singing a song that you'll recognize. And, and, and even though this baby is probably only about a year old or so, and probably... I mean, I don't even think that baby necessarily understands the words, but this baby understands something. This baby's got a revelation. Wait for us, Daniel. <laughs> Just watch the baby. Good father, it's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. To you are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. To Does the fact that God is your Father? Make big old tears run down your cheek. Does the fact that God is your father touch your heart like it touched this little baby's heart? In 1 John 3 verse 1, John, you know, he's writing like deep theologian, and in, in, in chapter 3 verse 1 he just says, Behold the manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we can be called children of God. He, he, must, he, he wants to break, you can hear, he gets lyrical, he wants to break out in singing. Does the fact that God is your father, the love that God has bestowed upon you that says, you're my father, that is, does it make you emotional? Then you know, then you know, you're starting to get it. You're starting to get it. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.